0: Varmt välkommen.
1: Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarsem på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Roxane Gay i samtal med Mona Masri Sveriges Radio. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Segelstorget i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början.
0: What's your fan club called? Beyonce's got the beehive. Oh, someone what are just we? gave me the name. The Gagency. The Gagency. <laughs> <laughs> so many cool people in here. I love the Gagency. <laughs> <laughs> well, what an honor to have you here, Roxanne. Welcome to Sweden. Thank you, Mona. Um, you tweeted the other day about coming to Sweden, and you said that you were... A bit afraid, and then you wrote that Swedes are aliens. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Why? Everyone is
1: so attractive. <laughs> it's just disturbing. Um, you know, I was walking down the street in the airport on the plane. There were these like strapping Swedish men, and they just kept standing up <laughs> and like showing their beauty. And I was just like, this is annoying. Their genetics need to calm down. <laughs> Um, So it it was just intimidating, (laughs) but in a good way. Well,
0: welcome to space. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And before we talk about your book, An Untamed State and other interesting things, I want to talk about something slightly more acute. I want to talk about (laughs) Beyoncé. Of course,
1: Uh, our queen.
0: I happen to be the head and founder of the um, organization Swedish Biologists, which is just a fancier way of saying I spend a lot of time on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, But as always with Beyoncé, there are tons of think pieces written after Mm -hmm. she does anything, Mm -hmm. and...
1: um, Beyonce woke up, let's write about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, and a few days ago, the matriarch of cool thinkers of color, Professor Bell Hooks, wrote a piece where she criticized Beyonce and her album Lemonade because uh, she thought it was stereotypical in that quote, the black woman is always a victim. Mm -hmm. And I know you responded to that. What's your take on, on... on her piece?
1: Uh, you know, I think Bell Hooks is brilliant. Uh, I think that she has a blind spot when it comes to Beyonce.
0: She's called her a terrorist.
1: Yes. This is not the first time that she has maligned our queen, and <laughs> she only gets three. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think she's become increasingly militant as she's gotten older, and I respect that. I, I understand why. but. Um, I don't think, I think that this is a hard world. And I think it's a very hard world in which to be a black woman. And I think that militancy becomes the only option when you realize how much work we have to do to achieve any sort of equality. And so I have a lot of empathy for her her propositions. But I think she is sort of barking up the wrong tree when it comes to Beyonce. Um, For one, I don't think that Beyoncé positions herself as a victim. I think she positions herself as a woman scorned. And infidelity is something that happens to many people in relationships. And I I love the way that Beyoncé treated it because she took me on a journey throughout the album, Lemonade, At the beginning we learn that she's betrayed and then we see her angry and then we see her heartbroken. And then at the end there's redemption and she chooses to stay in this relationship. And uh, that's very much going against the dominant narrative we have about infidelity where when your partner cheats, it's over and you leave them. And that she chooses to stay, at least within the narrative of Lemonade, I think is fascinating. And I think we should be talking about that and um, I think there's a lot of power in claiming your own story and so I don't see her as a victim and I also don't think it's a bad thing to be a victim. I think we suffer as women and it's okay to acknowledge that suffering and I think that bell hooks is made uncomfortable by suffering and I think she also is made uncomfortable by the millions hundreds of millions of dollars Beyoncé is going to make uh, for talking about her suffering. I mean, it is, in addition to being a work of art, a capitalistic endeavor. Um, And uh, bell hooks is very critical of the capitalism of Beyoncé. But shit, if I had Beyoncé's talent and her body, I would walk around naked all the time and (laughs) make all kinds of music about that. Look at my amazing
0: thighs. (laughs) Like
1: Yes, Beyoncé, yes.
0: Your first book in Swedish is a collection of essays called Bad Feminist, uh, which is actually your second book, uh, mm-hmm. no, your third book in yes. English. And I think, in a way, that Beyonce embodies the idea of a bad feminist because people are still discussing whether uh, she can be feminist while, while shaking her booty, mm. can you be feminist and get married or, or want to be rich, etc. So, what is a a good and bad feminist? What is a bad feminist?
1: Well, you know, when I wrote the book, it was tongue-in-cheek. I mean, it was an essay, and I just titled the collection after the one essay, and then it became this huge thing, where now people are like, it's the bad feminist, and I think, (laughs) where? (laughs) Should we hide? Is she scary? Um, But I was thinking about my life as a feminist and I came to feminism fairly late in life or I came to accepting my feminism really in my 30s and uh, it took me so long because mainstream feminism seemed so rigorous and like so much work and I just don't have the discipline to you know, be perfect all the time. And so I thought if that's good feminism, well, okay, I'm a bad feminist, I'm a very bad feminist. And then the more serious part of it was that mainstream feminism has traditionally been concerned with middle-class, heterosexual, white women. And it has ignored the needs of women of color, queer women, transgender women, working-class women, disabled women, just really anyone who is different in any way. And so I wanted to critique that. And again, if that's good feminism, then I'm a very bad feminist, and happily so.
0: Do you remember...
1: Oh. Do
0: you get embarrassed? I'm shy,
1: <laughs> oddly enough, which makes my job really hard.
0: <laughs> Do you, you said uh, you um, sort of discovered or embraced your uh, feminism like, fairly late in your 30s. Do you yeah. remember a specific moment? Oh,
1: absolutely. I was working at the University of Nebraska College of Engineering in the communications department, and so I would write for the magazine about the exploits of the engineering faculty and their research and so on and they would talk to me like I was an idiot and I just thought I can do what they do. I mean I could work twice a week and sit around all day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I went and got my PhD (laughs) and now I work twice a week and sit around all day. Um, I just realized there's nothing that's stopping me from doing the kinds of things that men do, and. the only thing really stopping me was myself. And I recognized that feminism is what helped me to believe that I could go all the way in school and get a degree in something I knew very little about at the beginning and do well at it. And ever since then, I've just continued to see the importance of feminism. And not only in terms of just sort of self-empowerment, but in terms of the global condition of women and reproductive freedom and addressing sexual violence, childcare, maternity leave. Um, There's a lot of issues that we need to address so that women can move through the world with the freedom that men do.
0: There's a line in the bell hooks piece that we just talked about on Beyonce that might as well have been about your book, An Untamed State, *Evil mm-hmm. Viltillstånd, in Swedish. It reads, the story begins with a story of pain and betrayal, highlighting the trauma it produces. Mm-hmm. And the novel is about Mireille, who lives in Miami, where she works as a migration attorney. She gets kidnapped while visiting her parents in Haiti with her uh, white American husband and their baby. She's held with the kidnappers for 13 days because her father refuses to pay ransom because he, uh, well, he doesn't believe in negotiating with kidnappers. And also, he doesn't want them to take from him what took him a lifetime to build, which is a lot of money. Um, Before we talk more about the book, would you like to read for us from the novel?
1: Sure. I would love to. Thank (laughs) you. I'm going to read in English. My Swedish is not so good. I only know tak (laughs) tak, which I know is thank you. (laughs) So I'm just going to read from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time in a far off land, I was kidnapped by a gang of fearless yet angry young men with so much impossible hope beating inside their bodies. It burned their very skin and strengthened their will right through their bones. They held me captive for 13 days. They wanted to break me. I was not broken. It was not personal. This is what I tell myself. It was hot, nearly 100 degrees. The air so thick it felt like warm rain. I dressed my son, Christoph, in a pair of miniature red shorts and a light blue t-shirt with a sailboat on the front. I covered his smooth brown arms and his beaming face with sunscreen. I kissed his nose and brushed his thick dirty blonde curls away from his face as he pressed his palms against my cheeks and shouted, Mama! Mama! My husband Michael, the baby and I, said goodbye to my parents, told them we would be back in time for dinner. Michael and I were taking Kristoff to the ocean for the first time. We were going to hold him in the warm salt water as he wiggled his toes and kicked his chubby legs. We were going to throw him toward the sun and catch him safely in our arms. My mother smiled from the balcony where she watered her plants, wearing a crisp linen outfit and high heels. She blew a kiss to her grandson. She reminded us to be safe. We put our son in his car seat. We handed him his favorite stuffed animal, a little bulldog named Baba. He clenched his beloved toy tightly in his little fist, still smiling. He has his father's temperament. He is usually happy and that is important to me. Before getting into the car, Michael double-checked that Kristoff was strapped securely in his car seat. He put our bags in the trunk. Michael held my door open, and when he closed it, he pressed his face against the window and blew air until his cheeks filled. I laughed and pressed my hand against his face through the glass. I love you, I mouthed. I don't say those words often, but he knows. Michael ran around to his side of the car. After he slid behind the steering wheel and adjusted the rearview mirror so he could see the baby, he leaned into me and we kissed. He rested an arm on the armrest between us and I idly brushed the golden wisps of hair. I smiled and rested my head on his shoulder. We drove down the long, steep hill of my parents' driveway and waited quietly for the heavy steel gates, those gates keeping us safe, to open. In the back seat, Christophe cooed softly, still smiling. As the gates closed behind us, three black Land Cruisers surrounded our car. The air filled with high-pitched squealing and the smell of burning rubber. Michael's tan knuckles turned white as he gripped the steering wheel and looked frantically for a way out. His body shook. The doors of all three trucks opened at the same time, and men we did not know spilled out, all limbs and gunmetal. There was silence, the air thin, still hot. My breath caught painfully in my ribcage. There was shouting. Two men stood behind our car, machine guns raised. Michael pressed his foot against the gas to move forward, but a tall man with a red bandana across the lower half of his face, a man holding a machine gun, pounded his fist on the hood. He left a small dent in the shape of his closed hand. He glared at us and then raised his gun, pointed it directly at Michael's chest. I threw my arm across my husband's body. It was a silly, impotent gesture. Michael's eyes were bright and arcs of tears trembled along his eyelids. He grabbed my hand between both of his, held me so fiercely it felt like those slender bones would be crushed. Two men slammed the butts of their rifles against the car windows. Their bodies glowed with anger. The glass cracked, fractures spreading. Michael and I pulled apart, waited tensely, and then the windshield broke, the sound loud and echoing. We covered our faces as shards of glass shattered around us, refracting sharp prisms of light. Michael and I reached for Christoph at the same time. The baby was still smiling, but his lips quivered, his eyes wide. My hands could not quite reach him. My child was so close, my fingers thrummed. I thought, if I touch my child, we would all be fine. This terrible thing would not happen. A man reached into the window and unlocked my door. He started to pull me roughly out of the car, growling as the seatbelt held me inside. After he slapped my face, he ordered me to unlock my belt. My hands shook as I depressed the button. I was lifted up and out of the car and thrown onto the street. The skin covering my face stung. My body deflated. My body was just skin stretched too tightly over bone, nothing more, no air. The man sneered at me and called me diaspora. With the resentment, those Haitians who cannot leave hold for those of us who can. His skin was slick. I couldn't hold on to him. I tried to scratch, but my fingers only collected a thick layer of sweat. I tried to grab onto the car door. He slammed his gun against my fingers. I yelled, my baby, don't hurt my baby. One of the men grabbed me by my hair and threw me to the ground, kicked me. I gasped as I wrapped my arms around myself. A small crowd gathered. I begged them to help, they did not. They stood and watched me screaming and fighting with all the muscle in my heart. I saw their faces and the indifference in their eyes, the relief that it was not yet their time. The wolves had not yet come for them. Thank you. So it's a very cheerful book. (laughs)
0: Mireille is held for 13 days Mm -hmm. and after a while uh, she starts telling herself that she is nothing, uh, no one, nobody. And after a few more days, she starts referring to herself in third person. She starts talking about herself as her Mm -hmm. instead of saying I or me. What happens to her?
1: I think that in order to survive, she has to splinter to save some part of herself. Um, And that to do what she needs to do to survive, she has to become someone else. And so she has to lock away the woman she was, the woman who loves her husband and her child, and she has to become a new woman who is nothing. And I think when you're nothing, you're capable of anything. And that's what she becomes. And then she also just starts to lose her mind, I think. It's one thing to be kidnapped and to think, of course, my father is going to pay the ransom. Uh, When I sat down to write this novel, I thought, what's the worst thing I can think of? Uh, Which is not healthy, perhaps, but um, it's not kidnapping and it's not even violence. To me, the worst thing is betrayal. And for her, she's betrayed by her father, who out of moral righteousness decides not to pay the ransom for far too long. And I think the longer she's held, the more she begins to realize, that her father is making this choice and that he's keeping anyone else in her life from doing what needs to be done to pay at least some of this ransom. And so she just starts to give up hope. And I think when you give up hope, you start to lose whatever you had left of your mind. And so she's just starting to go crazy.
0: Yeah. So what is it about betrayal that Why did you want to write about betrayal?
1: I don't know, it just felt to me like that's the true horror and that's the true thing that she needs to overcome in the after when she's released. Um, I think that a lot of times when we read novels and we see movies about things like kidnapping, everyone makes the right decisions at all times. They do the perfect thing and they have the million dollars already in like two hours. And I don't think that's how life works. And that's definitely not how life works in Haiti. Um, Nothing is black and white there. And so I wanted to um, write about how people behave in reality and not in some idealized version of reality.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, eventually, after 13 days, she's released. And I guess in a... Traditional story or traditional way of telling a story is the book ends with her release, mm-hmm. right? She's, she gets, she's kidnapped, she's held captive, and then she's released, end of story, she's alive. But when she's released, there's a whole third of the book left. Yes. Um, what was it about this afterwards that you wanted to write about?
1: I was actually more interested in the aftermath than the kidnapping itself. And so I decided to write the book in two parts, um, the destruction of her fairy tale life and then how she tries to find it again and rebuild it. I think that all too often the happy ending is, oh, she's released and you know she takes a shower and everything is better. <laughs> and that's not how life works. Trauma lingers. And I think it changes people. I think it changes your relationships because she comes, from, she comes back a different woman. And so the people in her life have to get to know this new woman. Her husband has to find a way to love this new woman. And she has to find a way to reconnect with her son as a changed woman. And so what does that process look like? And for me, I was very interested in sort of seeing the complications of that process. And in the novel, it takes her quite some time and even at the end of the novel, you know, I tried to write as happy an ending as I think a woman like her would have, but still show that there was still work to do and that there was still happiness out
0: there for her to find. Because <laughs> uh, uh, I think uh, one of the um, one of the most moving things for me personally reading this book is how. Well, you write about post-traumatic stress, about uh, numbness, mm-hmm. being and feeling numb, about a, a sort of state where time doesn't exist. She walks into a room and all of a sudden it's next morning. Mm-hmm. Um, where does this understanding come from?
1: Uh, you know, I've lived a long life. I think that I mean, a lot of it comes from my imagination. And um, I think some of it comes from having experienced PTSD. And um, so just a combination of those two things. I'd say 90% imagination. I have a very dark imagination, (laughs) which is why I write novels.
0: So uh, obviously kidnappings and violence against women is not a Haitian thing. No. You dedicate your book to women all over the world. But why, did you, why is it set in Haiti?
1: Um, it's set in Haiti because my parents are from Haiti. And so um, it's just a place I'm familiar with. And as I got older and began to realize the real class divide in Haiti and the idea of absolute versus relative poverty, I felt a lot of guilt. And I wanted to explore that in writing. Um, and so I worried. I worried a great deal because I don't want people to read this book and think, oh, I'm never going to go to Haiti. Haiti's beautiful. It's wonderful. You should absolutely go. Um, but we can talk about the bad things that happen in a country in addition to talking about the good things. And I know that white male writers never sit around thinking, oh, this is a terrible expression of our country. Um, de- like in the US, we have a writer named Dennis Lehane, who writes crime novels about Boston, and he makes Boston look like you can't walk down the street <laughs> without being accosted in some way. And he- I know he doesn't ever once think about how he's making Boston look. And so I refuse to hold myself to an unnecessary double standard.
0: Yeah, but I, well, the little that I know of Haitians is that they're very proud of their country. Yes. Uh, What reactions have you gotten from other Haitians?
1: A lot of Haitians haven't read the book yet because the French rights were not sold. They just sold two weeks ago. Um, The French just don't like to buy books about Haiti because of their colonial guilt. (laughs) (laughs) And so I just sold the French rights. But um, Haitians have read the book, and they've been very supportive. There's been some critique, and. Rightfully so, I think anyone should be, I'm I'm very open to it. Uh, But Haitian people, we're just down for other Haitian people. There aren't that many of us. And (laughs) so, um, I've actually been warmly embraced and I got inducted into the Haitian Hall of Fame. (laughs) Which was awesome, I didn't even know that existed and I thought, you shouldn't be inducting me, you should be inducting my father, who's the really awesome Haitian that I know, and my mother for that matter. But And I told them that, and they were like, well. (laughs) I was like, well,
0: (laughs) But So you're talking about, well, you're talking about colonial guilt, but I'm the daughter of migrants myself. And uh, every time I try to say anything negative about Lebanon, Mm -hmm. I feel very guilty. Mm -hmm. Did you um, have any problems with guilt?
1: Absolutely, I did, because. How dare I say anything? I'm part of the diaspora. I go back to Haiti at will. I leave at will. When I'm there, I enjoy a relatively luxurious life. Um, But I think I'm also in a very good position to bring attention to the issues in Haiti and to comment. And the one thing I always try to do when talking about Haiti is make sure that I frame my subject position clearly, to make sure that I, I say I am on the outside looking in. I wouldn't dare, for example, to pretend to understand what it's like to really be um, embroiled in that sort of mind-numbing poverty that so many Haitians face. I can comment on it from a distance as long as I acknowledge why and how I'm doing so. So I do feel guilt at times, but um, I also just think we write what we're called to write about.
0: And you've written about Haiti before as well. Your first book is called a- Aiti? Am I pronouncing it right?
1: Uh, yes, Aiti. Aiti.
0: Mm-hmm. Aiti. It's also about Haiti. So what is it about Haiti, apart from it being the country that your parents are from, that makes you go go back and write about it?
1: My parents are super Haitian.
0: What does that mean?
1: (laughs) They um, (laughs) raised us with a very strong, and my father especially, a very strong um, Haitian identity. So we always knew we were Haitian. We were Haitian in America. And um, so we grew up loving Haiti as much as they do. And because I grew up in the States, um, Haiti has also held us some fascination. You know, what is this country that made my parents? And um, you know, yeah, what is this country that made my parents? Uh, that was what really intrigued me, and. Just I loved knowing more about them because they would never really talk about it. They left Haiti, and that was that. But then they were like, "We love Haiti." I'm <laughs> like, "Hmm, <laughs> why did you leave then?" <laughs> uh, and so there was also a sense of mystery and trying to learn more about sort of was there a secret? Um, there's no secret, sadly. But um, yeah, just fascination.
0: Yeah. Uh, What strikes me whenever I hear you speak or I read you is how funny you are, Uh, Mm -hmm. hilarious, actually. But like you said yourself, An Untamed State is not a very funny book. No. It's not very... Well, it doesn't have to be cheerful, but it's certainly not humoristic. No. Um, Is humoristic writing or funny writing something that you can turn on and off?
1: Yeah, definitely. When I'm... Especially in my nonfiction, I use humor as um, an entry into writing about some of the difficult topics I tackle in my nonfiction, race, gender, sexuality, uh, issues that people have very strong opinions about. And so how do you reach people? I think you start with humor uh, because we all like to laugh and to be reminded of the absurdity of the world. And so I think it's just a really good on-ramp into difficult issues. Uh, And then sometimes you just need to be serious. And so with the novel, there was no place for humor. Though I do think there are moments, um, as I was writing the novel, anytime I would get to a place where I just thought, wow, what is wrong with you? Um, This is way too dark. Then I would write a flashback from her marriage or her courtship with her husband um, that was happier. And I tried to include what humor I could in those moments to sort of cut the darkness. Uh, In my nonfiction, it's a lot easier to insert humor, and so I use it liberally, but um, hopefully not too much, because you do want to be taken seriously. And so I like to be funny, but I don't like to force it either.
0: Right. Is it a challenge for you to be funny or to not be funny when no. you're writing?
1: I was born like this. It just <laughs> comes naturally. Woke
0: up. <laughs> Flawless. Because <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit of, about voice, because that's Reading An Untamed State, I felt like the, the, you, that there was, the story had its voice, mm-hmm. and then when I got to the thank you notes in the end, I was like, there she is, Yes, that's her voice.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in fact, <laughs> in the original acknowledgements, I also think Law and Order SVU, but my editor <laughs> was like, I don't think that's such a good idea. <laughs> And I was like, oh, man. So I think Law and Order, SVU, and Bad Feminist. <laughs> and, it's a um, TV show. It, yeah, it's an American TV show, um, a procedural. But it's on TV here because I watched it last night <laughs> in my hotel room. It was so good. Um, I was like, oh, finally, because some of the TV has been challenging.
0: <laughs> but so how did you... Because um, well, you have a very clear unique voice as a writer how do you or how did you find that voice
1: um I think just persistence and I've been writing for a very long time and the older I've gotten the more confident I've gotten in my voice and in articulating how I see the world um I wish there's nothing like specific I can point to even though I'm actually writing a book about finding my voice (laughs) Um, It's not so easy as to point to like January 3rd, 1984. That's when I knew. Um, But I think for me the the biggest issue is that I decided early on to just be myself and to not put up any artifice because it's just easier to be one person than it is to be like five different people, depending on, you know, who you're around. And so um, really my voice rises out of laziness. And just a decision like, oh, it's too much work to have to like put different personas on, so I'm just going to be me all the time.
0: We're just more being genuine more than Yeah. Busy.
1: Well, that too. But it did start out of like, oh, who has the kind of energy? Like we you know, when I graduated with my degree, I thought, Oh, I'm a professor now, so I have to mm. <laughs> Um, and then I just thought, oh, that's not who I want to be for the next 20 years. And so I try to do my job well, but also be human.
0: <laughs> so like you mentioned, you're a professor in Indiana. Yeah. You, you're making a funny oh, face. Oh, I, I hate Indiana.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and they, they know it, so it's not a secret.
0: No guilt in here. Hell no.
1: (laughs) It's a shithole. It's just (laughs) so bad. It's homophobic and racist. Like the Klan is very active there. The Ku Klux Klan, which is your version of the white supremacists that were in that one town the other day with Tess. um, They're everywhere. And so I just don't, you know, you get to a certain point in life where you just think I work too hard to deal with this every day. And so... My time in Indiana is coming to an end.
0: <laughs> yeah, what's, yeah, where are you
1: going? Um, well, what I've negotiated with my job is I currently teach full time. And so I'm going to move to teaching quarter time. Uh, so one class a year instead of four. And um, one day a week, it's really great. <laughs> <laughs> they really love me at my job. <laughs> and So I'm really lucky. Um, And so I'm gonna do that for at least two years to see out the students I started with now um, and to make sure that they get the education that they thought they were getting when they came to the program. And then um, we'll see from there, but I'm gonna split my time between uh, Indiana and Los Angeles.
0: Yes. Lucky you. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's a rough life, oh, so rough. So why Los Angeles and not L- LA? Because you think, uh, I mean, why Los Angeles and not New York? Because you would think New York is a, li- is a bit more literary. Yeah,
1: my partner lives in Los Angeles. So that's the easy answer. Um, the weather. Uh, I hate tiny spaces. I'm a big woman. I'm 6'3". I'm overweight. So I'm not going to like live in a tiny New York apartment <laughs> and spend $4,000 a month. Are you crazy? No. I was raised to be frugal so I'm gonna live in a normal-sized space. I think LA is equally outrageous in terms of money, but you get way more space. And so um, I'm gonna look forward to that. And then, An Untamed State is actually gonna be a movie. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We just sold the movie, right?
0: (laughs) Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, it's
1: gonna be produced by Fox Searchlight. And uh, the actress, the star is going to be Gugu Mbatha-Raw, who did um, a movie called Belle and a movie called, uh, right? She's so great. And I met her, and she's tiny and pretty. Like, she wasn't wearing any makeup, and I was like, what the hell? (laughs) Just glowing with youth and just gorgeousness. Uh, And so I was like, look away from me. (laughs) And then um, directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, who uh, directed The Secret Life of Bees, and Beyond the Lights, and um, Love and Basketball.
0: Yeah,
1: she's fantastic. And so, and also our executive at Fox Searchlight is a black woman. Uh, I know, who knew? (laughs) I didn't even know they existed. (laughs) When I walked into the meeting, I was like, oh my God, you're a woman. And then I was like, oh, Roxanne, you said that out loud. (laughs) But uh, I'm excited, and I'm actually writing the screenplay, so. I'm a control freak. What and a dream I, team. I have a really good agent.
0: <laughs> what a dream team. Did you, yes. did you, well, hand pick yes. them yourself? or? Um,
1: what happened originally was these two producers um, produced a TV show many years ago in America called Reba, starring Reba McIntyre. And they made all their money on Reba and decided that they wanted to do something different. And so they approached me and said, we'd love to do something with an untamed state. And I was like, you, did Reba. Like what on earth? And, um,
0: what is Reba? For Reba is, is a specific? sitcom.
1: It's a half hour sitcom about a woman post divorce who, um, has a friendly relationship with her ex-husband and his new wife because they have kids together. And it's just about how she moves on after her divorce. It's actually a really good show and very enjoyable. Um, uh, but I was really surprised and So we just started bringing people on board. Um, They gave me a list. They said, who would you want as a dream director? And actually, my first choice was Gina. And we also looked at Ava DuVernay and um, the man who did 12 Years a Slave. Steve McQueen. Thank you. Thank you. Steve Steve McQueen. McQueen. And um, so we looked at different people, and it was just Gina all the way. And so I sent Gina a copy of the novel, and she was like, oh, I'm busy. I can't read this. And then... She picked it up that weekend anyway and read it and loved it. And so she came on board and she's worked with Google before. And so she got Google to attach. And then we also got a producer named Mike DeLuca who did um, a movie called Captain Phillips and a bunch of other stuff. He's at Universal and he was our fancy guy. And so with that team assembled, we started to pitch networks originally to do a four-hour miniseries on, so we went to HBO and Netflix. And they both said no, because they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but they were really nice about it, and I understood why. They just didn't have the resources to take on a project like this at that time. And then um, Michael and Mindy, the two producers that originally approached me said, hey, you know, let's try movies even though people had always said from the beginning that this book couldn't become a movie. And I was like, hmm.
0: They said it couldn't?
1: They said it was too violent. And I, I thought was it like, could be a have movie. you seen Hostel or <laughs> The Saw movies or really any movie ever? <laughs> like Quentin Tarantino makes his living making graphically violent movies. But when a woman does it, it's like, whoa, whoa, lady, stop. Um, and we actually had interest from a couple studios. And uh, Fox Searchlight, I think, is going to be a really good home. They're a small independent studio within the Fox studios. And so we're going to have access to that Fox publicity. Um, and you know, you have no idea how these things are going to go. It's Los Angeles and Hollywood, so. Uh, but I'm still optimistic. They bought the book, so we'll start there.
0: So where in the process are you now? Is the- They're
1: still filling out the paperwork. They've been doing paperwork for um, two months. Uh, my agent was like, you need to get a lawyer. And I was like, I can't afford a lawyer. Um, and then he was like, no, I just take a percentage. And his name is Lev, and he's the exact epitome of what you would imagine a Los Angeles lawyer to look like. <laughs> he's just snappy, and he's young, and he wears great suits. And he's like, OK, I've got 20 questions for the studio. And I was like, good, don't tell me about any of it. (laughs) Um, So we're wrapping that up. And this summer, um, Gina and I are going to sit down and talk about what parts of the novel are we going to use. Because you can't take all of it. And then I'm going to write the first draft of the screenplay. And then because I know my limits and I've never done it, she's going to revise. And um, then she's going to direct and I'm going to sit quietly on the sidelines.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing this movie.
1: Thank you. I think it's going to be wonderful. Gina is just so talented, and she has a really good vision, and she understands that we can't bring, I mean, she wants to stay true to the novel, but a lot of people are really worried, like, oh, I don't want to see all that rape. Like, I mean, what do you think? Like, We're not crazy. It's not meant to be gratuitous, and so you're gonna see what you need to see to understand the um, gravity of what Mireille endures, but it's gonna be well done. LA is a very good place for writing. It's wonderful. I have so many writing friends there. Um, There is actually a really vibrant writing community there and it gets overlooked because people think of LA and they think of the glitz and the glamour and you know the very superficial people that's hollywood which is the smallest little neighborhood in los angeles and then of course you know there are circles around hollywood and they're still affected by la-ness but <laughs> there are lots of really wonderful people and i actually love being there and I love the other writers that I know there. I go to lots of events and just get to see all these really talented people doing some amazing work. And so I'm really looking forward to it.
0: As for now, you're still in Indiana. I am. And uh, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I do have a
1: cute apartment, sort of. It's really broken, but it's cute.
0: And you've said that you wouldn't survive in Indiana without the internet and the online community. Yes. What has the online community or, well, the internet done for you as a writer and maybe uh, specifically as a black woman writer?
1: Yeah, it's done everything. I live in a small town, and I've lived in very small towns now for the past 12 years. And so it allows me to feel connected to a writing community and other writers while also not having to be around other writers, which is a gift. Um,
0: Why it, is that? What's wrong with I? I'm, writers, well, I, mean, I just, know there are a lot of poets and writers in yeah. here. So
1: <laughs> I think in general, writers can be very awkward. And <laughs> I also notice, like, I go to New York a fair amount for work, and I notice that the writers there are miserable. And all they do is talk about each other, and who did this, and who got that deal, and who's not going to turn in their book on time, and yada, yada, yada. And I mean, I love gossip as much as the next person, but like, let's extend our gossip beyond, <laughs> beyond our work. <laughs> like, Surely we can talk about who's having an affair with whom. Um, and so I, I get to have the parts I want of being part of a writing community. And of course, there's gossip online, but more of it is just connection and becoming familiar with other writers. And what I find to be most important, which is sharing the work of other women writers and women of color writers and queer writers and making sure that their voices are amplified. Um, And so I really just appreciate the internet for that. And it has helped me find an audience for my work, quite frankly. And so I think some of my success comes from just sheer persistence and my cockroach mentality of I'm never going away, so you might as well just (laughs) read it now Um, (laughs) and then part of it I think comes from having a consistent online fan base and engaging with that fan base regularly
0: Uh, well you've been called one of the finest cultural observers writing today and you've (laughs) also been been called the queen of twitter (laughs) so I went to your account and I found all sorts of current pop culture tweets mm. <laughs> you're getting embarrassed <laughs> so, i don't even
1: remember what i've been tweeting so that could be awkward pretty active. yeah
0: i love it thank I you i follow you uh, so you you the last few days you've tweeted about the kardashians about yep. black china getting engaged to rob oh my rob. god
1: I don't know if you guys follow the Kardashians at all, but Black China is a ninja. She just got in there and was like, "I am pregnant." What? (laughs) Uh, Hats off, like girl, you did something that millions of others tried. Good for you.
0: Did you see the picture that she posted with Kylie Jenner, Rob's little sister, that was once together with With Black China's ex-boyfriend? Boyfriend,
1: -boyfriend. yeah, it's this. (laughs) <laughs> There's so much going on there, or just like disinfect.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You've also tweeted about uh, the Swedish ver- TV show, uh, well, the version of TV show Biggest Loser, mm-hmm. about Malia Obama going to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought about asking you to discuss these topics, but then I read another tweet where mm-hmm. you said, I am not a vending machine. <laughs> You yes. can't just spit out opinions whenever so, someone asks you. So I'm going to rephrase. Okay. And I was wondering, what is it about pop culture that fascinates you? Well, I mean,
1: pop culture, I think, is so much of our lives. Um, we, you know, I think as humans, we like to be entertained. And so part of that entertainment comes from celebrities. Part of it comes from music, television, movies, books. And... Um, Pop culture, people oftentimes try to treat it as this separate thing from the loftier arts. But it's all part of a spectrum. It's all part of a culture. And, you know, when I talk about pop culture, I'm often talking about representation and how marginalized groups are so underrepresented in popular culture. Or when they are represented, they're treated very badly. Like, take The Biggest Loser, for example, which is a show that I used to watch obsessively, because it's such a great fantasy. You go to a ranch, and you exercise for eight hours a day, and you eat 1,000 calories, and you lose 200 pounds, and your life is perfect. Um, uh, But the show humiliates the people to get that result. And it's actually really, really unhealthy to exercise for eight hours a day. Um, The only thing you should be doing for eight hours a day is having sex or sleeping. Anything else is just abuse. And so I question like why we do that. And we do that because culturally, throughout the world really, um, people have a problem with overweight bodies and with bodies that stray from the norm and stray from discipline. And so I think we can talk about pop culture as a reflection of the world that we live in. And we see the same thing with gender and with race and ethnicity, uh, with um, sexuality. And so uh, pop culture is, the again, like humor, the entry point to talking about some of the very serious issues that we face in this world.
0: And how is that uh, interest met in the academic world? world? Oh, you know, I'm
1: really lucky. I teach creative writing, and so they just don't care what we do. (laughs) Like, hey, write a book or two, and you're good. Um, I'm really lucky. My original field is uh, my PhD is in rhetoric and technical communication. And I just never really went down that road. Um, And so I don't have to worry about a lot of the pressures that academics face in terms of playing the publisher perish game. You have to publish in creative writing, but there's a lot more freedom in terms of what you publish and what you talk about. I've been very lucky in that both of the universities where I've taught have loved the attention that I bring them. (laughs) Um, Purdue, especially, is incredibly supportive. No matter what crazy thing I say, they um, have my back. And um, I have a column in the New York Times. And the only thing they asked was, could you say in your bio that you teach at Purdue? (laughs) I was like, oh, y'all are dirty. That's just shameless. And so the Academy has been really supportive. um, And I, I recognize how fortunate I am in that regard.
0: Your next book is called Hunger. Yes. Tell us about it. What is it about? It's
1: a book. No, I'm just messing with you, Mona. Um, Hunger...
0: Please don't.
1: Yeah, I'll try not to. I'll be nice. Hunger is a memoir, which I never thought I would write, but it's a memoir about my body, and it's looking at trauma and obesity, um, and obesity as a coping mechanism, and food, really, as a coping mechanism. And uh, what happens when you heal as much as you're going to heal from the trauma, but you are left with the body that you made. Um, And how do you live in a world that is very inhospitable to overweight bodies? And so it's another cheerful book. (laughs) Uh, It's a darker book, again, but I think it's a necessary book. And a lot of times when we read about women and weight, it's a triumphant story about weight loss. And the woman poses on the cover of her book in half of her fat pants. And uh, I didn't write that book. I wrote the opposite book. And uh, so I'm scared, but looking forward to seeing how it's received.
0: And when is it due? How, how far along in the process are you?
1: It's so late. It was supposed to come out next month. <laughs> I haven't turned it in yet. Uh, so it's going to come out in the fall. Okay.
0: Yes. And... Uh, so you said it's about obesity and trauma, and mm-hmm. in this book, An Untamed State, uh, Mireille deals with trauma by starving herself. Yes.
1: Um, I, I think that w- people in general, I won't I I even say it's only women, because I think men do it too, food is something you can control. And you can control it by restricting, or you can control it by overindulging. And, You can change your body and game your body, really. And so for Mireille, she goes in the opposite direction, where she just wants to feel empty. She wants to feel purged of everything she's been through. And so she starves herself. And for me, um, after I was raped, I was so young and I was so small. And I thought, well, if I make myself big, I will never get hurt again. And. I was 12, so that was really ridiculous. But you know, we don't ask 12-year-olds to make adult decisions for a reason. And so, um, you know, I think that was the only coping mechanism. That was the one thing I could control when everything else was so out of control. And then it snowballed. The older I got, the more it just became a safety net and what was familiar. And then by the time I realized, oh, this is not what I want. And by the time I realized that it, I was not really protecting myself, I was only hurting myself. You know, you have a problem on your hands.
0: And today, where are you today in your oh, you know, your journey? Or I think that
1: today I'm in a place where I, I'm working on losing weight, but I'm also trying to be patient with myself and trying not to make myself crazy over it, because I want to be fitter. I want to be around for a long time. Um, I just want everything to be easier. And um, I broke my ankle um, a year ago, and that was really, for me, the like straw that broke the camel back. Um, I broke it because I passed out. It had nothing to really do with my weight. But nonetheless, healing from a broken ankle and being overweight is not something I recommend ever. In life, it never break an ankle. It's just the worst bone in the body, because you use it all the time. And so, I was actually wheelchair bound for eight weeks. And I just thought, there's no way I'm going to go through the rest of my life like this. Um, and so, that was really what sort of motivated me to to think about hunger and to write the book. And I think writing the book forced me to confront myself and to sort of look at these old habits that I've been holding on to for almost 30 years. Um, that are not serving my best interests and that are sort of getting in the way of my happiness that I have like constant anxiety about who's going to make fun of me today and who's going to stare and who's going to talk shit and um, you know what are the chairs going to be like at this venue and uh, you know who am I going to sit next to on the airplane so on and so forth all of these decisions I have to make all day constantly And I just thought, I don't wanna do that anymore. I'm 41 and I'm finally successful in my career and I wanna be equally happy in my personal life. So we'll see how it goes.